I'm Sarah. And I'm Beth. We are lawyers, mothers, and hosts of the bipartisan podcast, Pantsuit Politics. Just as we differ in political philosophy, we've arranged our lives in very different ways, from our careers to where we live to our choices around marriage and family. But we have more in common than divides us. In a world that increasingly defaults to false dichotomies, we explore the messiness of living wisely. Choices, trade-offs, priorities, and grace of living a nuanced life. Thank you for joining us for another episode of The Nuanced Life. We are so excited today to be sharing lots of awesome feedback, as well as a conversation about seasonal living. And we, of course, will end the show with something to leave you a little inspired as the week goes on. We got so many messages about some of our past shows. And as we were reviewing them all, Beth had a really great insight, which is they're all really about the pressure we feel, either the pressure to drink, the pressure to be playing with our kids all the time, the pressure as single women. So we're going to review some of these messages and hopefully relieve some of the pressure. It all connects to the Bruxism beat, Sarah. That's right. We're just getting right back to why everybody's grinding their teeth. We're getting so many messages from people about that. Yeah. Update on the Bruxism beat. So as is the human way, I changed my behavior. It got better. And then I got lazy. (laughs) So I stopped particularly meditating every morning because it is kind of a commitment. I don't want to be whiny about meditating, but just a little bit. But man, when I stopped it, I started clenching again. So I think that I also had started drinking coffee, but I started drinking coffee before I stopped meditating and I was fine. And then when I stopped meditating is when I feel like I got a little clenchy again. So I really think the meditating and the legs up the wall and the lavender, those are my three, the three pieces I feel like really have to be in place to keep the bruxism under control. I do better meditating at night. I just can't do it in the morning. Oh, but I fall asleep, man. Mm, I do it like as early as possible as I can in the evening. If I I do it right before bed, I do start to nod off. I'm telling you, I do it after lunch. I fall asleep. It's serious. (laughs) So let's dive into pressure. The first pressure we want to talk about is a follow-up to our mommy wine culture conversation and the pressure to drink. And Caitlin pointed out that we we took a kind of lighthearted look at mommy wine culture, and it's important to recognize how quickly this goes from kind of funny and maybe a little bit of overkill to a real problem. Caitlin wrote, perhaps on another show, you could explore more deeply the damaging effect that addiction is having on the lives of women. Alcoholism Mm -hmm. is a progressive disease, and many women will tell you they started out with just a glass of wine with dinner or on the weekends. But then they added a second glass and then a third, and suddenly they were hiding wine boxes in the laundry room or behind the towels in the linen closet. I think it's an important point. And we, I think, struggled so much to not be judgmental in our discussion. Because we don't want to add to the pressure. We don't want to add to the pressure. But it is important, and I think it goes back to your point, Sarah, that there is always risk involved with alcohol. And sometimes that risk is going to be at an acceptable level for some of us, and sometimes it's not. We did sound like Seinfeld. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, Several people on Instagram commented, and um, Ashley, it's Ash West Thomp, so I'm assuming her name's Ashley, shared two awesome sources that I wanted to share with everybody else. Laura McGowan who is one of the, uh, she's on Instagram. She's in a really amazing blog in the sort of sobriety community. And then there was also at Hip Sobriety, which is Holly Glenn Whitaker, who's also another um, sort of, they call themselves sobriety warrior, sobriety evangelist. 
I fell down that rabbit hole. Their writing is so beautiful, so raw, so authentic. And I just as a questioner, anyone who stands up and is like, everybody says this is the way it has to be, but I reject that notion. It does not have to be this way. I, it just appeals to me on a deeply personal level. Um, so I really love their writing. I thought they had some really amazing points. So if you're interested in sobriety at all, I thought one of the best pieces I read from Laura McGowan was this idea that she wrote this thing like, are you an alcoholic? Well, what does it matter? What is If I say yes, if I say no, who cares? If alcohol, if you have consequences of your drinking that you don't like and your life is better without alcohol, then that's all you need to know. And I thought that was really great because I think we get really tied up in that label and can be really limiting in people's healing process. It can be stigmatizing to people who are really struggling with addiction. And so I just thought the way she wrote about that was really great. We'll put that show in the show notes. Um, So I I recommend both of them. I'm so glad that um, our listener on Instagram shared that and that I was able to sort of explore this community because I thought it was really, really great. We heard from so many people who've made the decision not to drink at any Mm -hmm. time and really feel a tremendous amount of pressure and judgment from other people about that decision. We kind of let each other off the hook on these things. Mm -hmm. Because it's every somebody's decision is not a reflection on you. It's like with birth. Just because I chose to have a home birth doesn't mean you need to regale me with all the list of reasons that your C-section was needed. That's what happens to me all the time. And I just want to be like, yo, I wouldn't. It's cool, man. It's cool. We do it on such simple things, too. Like if somebody doesn't eat meat, that is not a personal affront to me. Oh, my gosh. There's so many areas. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Oh. Similarly, the discussion around mommying in general and the level of attachment that we're supposed to have to our children came up in many of the messages in response Mm -hmm. to our episode. Christina sent us an an awesome email about a tradition that she has with some of her friends to go out of town without their kids. Or sometimes they take all of their children out with them and just basically keep them alive and feed them and parent communally, which I love. Mm -hmm. She said that the kids are free to roam in a controlled area, play, fight, work it out without much interference from us. I feel like I have to explain these dynamics to other moms in my wider circle. I tell them how important I think it is for our daughters to see that they don't have to sacrifice their entire beings on the altar of motherhood. And I think it's important for our sons to see mothers who aren't sacrificing everything to their own detriment because they won't grow up to expect their spouses to do the same just because that's what their mothers did. I say I think it's important for sons and daughters to see their mothers with friends because adult friendships become harder, amen to this, Mm -hmm. when marriage and family are added to the mix since there are only so many hours in the day. In the day-to-day, I keep up with my friends through a walkie-talkie app called Voxer, which Sarah and I love. (laughs) And I loved Christina's message because I do think that you have to explain it to people when you are – look, I quit my job to build a podcast and a coaching business. So between us, Sarah and I have like four different businesses going. People still ask me whether I'm keeping my children at home with me during the day. (laughs) No. How would I do that? No, I'm not. (laughs) No, the answer is no. And I do not feel guilty about that. And I think that there's just this constant sense of if you aren't, as Christina puts it, sacrificing your entire being on the altar of motherhood, you're not adequately committed to your children. And the truth is, when we make our children our only project, now that that is not true for stay-at-home moms. I do not think that being a stay-at-home mom means making your children your only project. I mean, when you are truly making your children your only project, 
that does not end well for your children. No, it's too much pressure for a three-year-old to be your entire reason for living. It's too much yes. pressure. I feel so passionately about this. I have um, some really dear friends. They have this place called Howdy Farm. There's no cell signal, which is the best part about Howdy Farm. But it's just, you know, there's like no running water. We camp. There's outdoor fires. There's a creek. And the children. there's children ranging from ages from like 13 down to like three or four. And they just go. I don't know what they do. And I don't care. I'm sure they throw rocks and hit each other with sticks and do all kinds of other sort of mildly dangerous things. And I'm here for it because I think it's important. There's this really great article going around about how the British are starting to build like these sort of, again, mildly dangerous playgrounds (laughs) for kids to experiment and to learn their own resiliency and to like get like that sharp, that's hot, don't touch it again. Like all these really awesome lessons that we think we need to protect our kids from. And I just think like, especially the communal parenting, I'm so for that. I will... Believe if we are friends, I will yell at your kids and I will not feel bad about it, just like I yell at my own kids. And it's just I think, too, they learned so much from each other in a wide age range like that. Like they let the big kids get to sort of learn their own authority and their independence. The little kids get to learn that, like, if I'm a jerk, no one's going to want to play with me. Like just I think it's so the dynamics of kids and like just playing like that is so so awesome. We're big fans of Esther Perel in this podcast. And my friend sent me an episode or an um, article in Man Repeller that she did an interview and she was talking about how, like, I, I was following along. Like, all, so many of the things she recommends, I feel like I do. I have a good community. My husband, I connect, I connect with my, myself. And then she said, and I don't go to their games on the weekends. And I was like, sorry, what? Like, she was like, no, that's their thing, that's their activity. They don't come to my activity, so I do my thing, and they do their thing, and our quality time is when it's our family thing. And I just thought that was so revolutionary because we all feel so much pressure to be up in their business all the time, to be at every single thing they ever go to. And I thought, Esther Perel, there you are being awesome one more time. I thought that was so awesome. Yeah, just let them. That's their thing. I don't need to be at their thing all the time. They don't come. My kids don't come to my city commission meetings. Like, come on. I thought it was so good. Well, and if you need to be at their thing for whatever reason— it can still be their thing. Yeah. Glennon, Glennon Doyle had a really great Instagram post this weekend about being at soccer. And she said, it is surprisingly difficult to just go to soccer, especially when one of you is an Olympic soccer, soccer player. As you might know, Glennon Doyle's wife, Abby Wambach, is a soccer star. <laughs> so she talked about how they take lollipops with them to remind them to shut up and just watch <laughs> the game. And that their whole role is to remember... That the kids are there to play, the coaches are there to coach, the referees are there to ref. She said, you parent, which means yell nothing, but yay, and good hustle, and you got this, and good idea, and maybe the occasional offside. Now, what? remember that awesome article that's supposed to say, the most important thing you can say is, I loved watching you play today. Yes. I love that. But she, one of the parts that I really loved from her post was to remember that children are dropping out of sports in record numbers. Mm. And this is the quote, largely because their parents are behaving like asshats on the sidelines (laughs) in record numbers, because things in general are less fun to do when bigger people scream at you the entire time you do them. Well, and that's the thing. Even when you think that you are just keeping an eye on your kids play. Just keeping everybody safe or just, you know, being there to help, you are absolutely changing the way they play. 100% your mere presence changes the way kids play. 
And like that's why they're from sports. Like that's why they hypothesize that so many sports stars come from third world countries where they're just playing in the streets and there aren't adults telling them, quote unquote, how to play to imaginative play where we're directing them, usually in gendered ways, like just step on out of there. If you want to let a kid be a kid, let a kid be a kid. Don't be an adult standing over a kid trying to be a kid. And it's hard to remember that nothing is about you. It's Mm -hmm. really difficult because we do tell ourselves that everything is about us and about the time that we need to be giving our kids. I have realized that my daughters play together the best when I am cooking dinner and truly leaving them alone. Mm -hmm. We got these massive shipments in the mail that came in two very large boxes this week. I gave Jane and Ellen the boxes and some markers and I cooked dinner and Chad was in the kitchen with me and the two of us marveled at how animated they were about these boxes. They were having the best time. Jane came and got some paper plates to turn hers into a car. Ellen had her own ideas and we just left them alone. And it was hard because that window of time is about the only window we have to play with them on a weekday when we're not trying to get them ready to go somewhere. We're not trying to get ready for bed. I mean, it is a very short period of time that we might have to play with them. They are so much better when we don't try to play with them during that window of time and let them play amongst themselves. But that's a hard lesson for parents who believe that we are solely responsible for our children's constant entertainment. I've said this before. I don't play with my kids. I read books. I will occasionally play a board game. That's about the limits. And I straight up had three kids so they could play together because it's so fun, especially siblings. And my, the ages of mine are really good. They play together for a long time. Yeah. Do they fight? Do they definitely hit each other and cry? Yeah, they do because they work it out. That's why when my friends are like, oh, can, can my child come over? I'm like, yes, please. Adding an additional kid means I don't hear from them for like two hours. It's amazing. So moving on in our uh, pressure carousel here, (laughs) let's talk about Susan's message because she was talking about pressure on single women. Mm -hmm. And the thing she said, lots of good things. The thing I wanted to pull out of her message was talking about how we create so much pressure around marriage and family that those are the only things we celebrate. Yep. So if you are a single woman There is not anything in your life that people are rushing out to celebrate. And she said, why don't we celebrate birthdays or getting a new dog or moving into a new house? And this is the one that I thought was genius. Repaying your student loans. There are so many aspects of life that would benefit all of us. I think it would take so much pressure off marriage if Mm -hmm. weddings could be less of a thing and if showers were less of a thing. There's something lovely about those traditions. I'm not saying let's just wipe away all the traditions. But it would be great to have some other things in life that are these really important milestones, some of them perhaps as a couple, but many as individuals. Well, and she said this um, wonderful thing about how a friend reached out and said, can I plan your birthday party this year? And she was almost in tears because she'd been planning her own birthday party for so year, so long. And I really believe in birthday parties because I think that that I, you know, we talk a lot about the overlap of identity and roles. And so much of what we celebrate is role driven. And I love birthdays because it's not about who you are or what your job is or who you're married to. It's because you were born and we're so happy you were born. Look, I'm tearing up. That's how much I love birthdays. And so... I love the idea. I told her I was going to email immediately my single friends and be like, can I plan your birthday party this year? Because that's such a beautiful thing that we should celebrate and nobody should have to plan their own dang birthday. Side note, I also don't think people should have to work on their birthdays. And when I'm queen of the world, no one works on their birthdays. That's also true. 
And you know, like, like reach out and plan your married friends' birthdays too. Mm-hmm. Like, let's take some pressure off of all these relationships and celebrate friendship outside of marriage. We just talked about that too. It's hard to keep those connections with your friends. There is a lot that we could do for each other that would yeah. make life a lot more fun, that would introduce the kind of ritual that's been a theme in our conversations lately. So I loved all of Susan's ideas. The well, l- and I was thinking about this in relationship to, and I think I talked about this on Pantsy Politics, that I re- listened to this really great Death, Sex, and Money about veterinarians and how they have some of the, like, the highest suicide rates in, like, of, among the professions because the pressure we've put on ourselves about our pets and sort of our attachment to our pets as well as the cost of taking care of our pets. And they have to deal with this all the time. And it just made me like... We're all, it's the spotlight effect. I know we all do it, but I'm like so consumed with my own life that I forget to look around and be like, oh my gosh, like, look at that burden that person's carrying. Can I help them at all? Can I do something? Like I was thinking about in my church that we do meal trains for like babies and surgery. I was like, man, there should be like a flu meal train when someone's just carrying a burden of flu or Mm -hmm. something like that. Like where are some ways that we can look around at each other and say, hey, can I ease the pressure on you in this way? Because it's so fulfilling to do that. And then it's to you personally. And then, of course, so helpful to the other person. So, hey, our listeners are amazing, this kind of stuff. If you guys have some spaces in which you've realized that that there are some sort of secret burdens going on or pressures that you've been able to ease in each other's lives, share away. That reminds me of another thing I wanted to crowdsource. In the conversation that we had about mommy wine culture, you mentioned, Sarah, the importance of having places where you can rebel that are not destructive Mm -hmm. to you. Mm -hmm. And we got a message on Facebook saying, okay, I'm going to need some ideas other than going to the movies in the middle of the day. And so I thought it would be fun. Well, the bras, nobody like my bras idea. (laughs) Listen, I'm not going anywhere without a bra ever. So that one is off the list for me. I will tell you that when I was in a very conservative working environment, See, it's all contextual, right? It depends on what rebellion feels like for you. So when I was in a really conservative working environment, I had like my secret rebellion of I like to buy blazers that were lined with animal print. And I liked (laughs) to paint my toenails green and do other things that were just private, like little cues that I was still a person. I wasn't just Sally lawyer in a black suit. Mm -hmm. Um. These days, Chad and I do go to the movie in the middle of the day sometimes, and I absolutely agree with you about what a treasure that is Mm -hmm. to be able to just skip out in the middle of the day and see a movie for lunch. Um, But let's think of other things. And so if you have ideas about that, we will compile them and share them. The last piece of pressure that we wanted to talk about was a message that I read on like a Saturday night at about 10 o'clock and then immediately texted Sarah because I had to talk about it. (laughs) Uh, We heard from a listener in response to our episode about pelvic floor health who had really severe tearing associated with her labor. And the portion of her message that we wanted to talk about on the podcast was that the message to her following that event was, we need to get this fixed so that you can have sex with your husband because this poor man. Mm. And that message came from... Lots of people in her life, medical providers, friends and family, and we both had a strong reaction to that. This message came right before I had a dear friend of mine over um, who's an OBGYN nurse, and she shared lots of stories about how this pressure on women to be sexual 
all the time for their quote unquote partner's well-being manifest in the like women she sees in her practice. Take a deep breath, y'all. You're going to need it, including women bringing their teenage daughters in for labiaplasty, which Beth got a text from me on that one because I needed her to be traumatized along with me. And I was. I If somebody told me that Paducah had labiaplasty, I'd have called you a liar, but apparently it's happening. So this, and she said, like, you don't know how often I see women in just with terrible health issues, pain, and they're, and it's again that narrative of just like suck it up, suffer through because men have to have sex. That's your like they have to do it. That's their need. If they don't get that need met, they're going to leave you or cheat on you. And it is such, such great a bullish. I don't even know where to begin. But it's so hard. Like where if if even as a health provider, like how do you start to chip away at that? Like they're getting that at at the end of the ball game. Like how do we chip away from this narrative so people aren't in a nurse's office with the OBGYN having OBGYN having to explain that like I know you feel vulnerable, but your central value inside this relationship is not as a vehicle for your husband's sexual desires. Unfortunately for the listener who shared this story with us, her husband was the best partner throughout all of this, Mm -hmm. didn't put pressure on her, was very supportive, understood. She said, you know, she kept trying to have sex and it was painful and associating sex with pain does not make it a desirable thing. Mm -hmm. And I think this is something that we need to have a lot more space for each other. It's also weird to me just that we would be having conversations with other people about how often i don't know like i wouldn't to someone who isn't experiencing some kind of trauma say how often are you having sex right Mm -hmm. that is just not a conversation that i have very regularly perhaps we should have it more i don't know but well and to take a trauma and say let me bring this up now i think that's so strange well and let me just say too as the mother of boys i was talking to my husband about this and he was like i don't understand like who wants to have sex with someone who's, you know, in pain, non-responsive, not participating, just quote unquote suffering through. And I think so much of it is we perpetuate to men that sex is sort of the actual, the sexual act itself is the end goal. That's the, you know, source of pleasure and fulfillment is just to have sex. And there's no sort of even in the language we use with men about sex and there's no sort of discussion that like of the role of intimacy or desire or um, sort of that that shared space together and then that's what you're looking for it's one of my favorite quotes from that new york times article about what kids learn from poor where the feminist porn activist was like i tell them if you want to have repeat customers don't watch porn If you want to be a selfish, lazy lover, yeah, act like that and you're not going to have any repeat customers. So I just thought that that was like, I think the way we talk about it with men is just as big a problem as the way we talk about it with women. Well, I think in some ways, a, a thing that this message calls out for me is that women do this to each other. We we don't solve mm-hmm. all of the issues that we're having around the Me Too conversation Without women being very committed to unpacking what we believe about ourselves and about sex and being really honest about that and being very careful about how we pressure each other. And that's Mm -hmm. true about sex. It's true about body image. When you think about moms taking their kids in to have labiaplasty, like we have some work to do 
within our group here about this. Because we do, I've all, I think we have all been in that conversation as women where it's, it's the pressure to participate. It's so, it's a cynical conversation and cynicism is an absence of hope that it can get better. And it's the cynical conversation that this is how men are. This is how men will always be. This is the way it is. And let's all just complain about it. I mean, I've been in that conversation more times than I can count in my life with other women. And instead of someone saying, no, that's not how my, because nobody wants to be the one that's like, no, I have a great healthy sex life and my husband is just as concerned about my orgasm as his, you know, like nobody wants to be that girl. So I think that that's the problem, right? We all just want to just sort of pile on and because cynicism is easy and hope is hard, especially in incredibly vulnerable private conversations about sex. It's such a good point. And on the flip side, to go back to Susan's message, all we celebrate are relationships mm -hmm. among women. And we talked about this when we talked about uh, gender disappointment. A lot of times we, when we have our babies, we immediately start thinking about our babies' weddings. Yeah. What are we doing? You know, and we, we, and we do that with babies. Oh, so-and-so, this baby's going to marry this baby and they'll be. Yeah, it's so Stop weird. it. Everybody stop. Okay, well, so lots of places to alleviate pressure for each other. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, next up, we're going to talk to who I've been lovingly calling Seasonal Sarah about, <laughs> about the ways in which seasonal living and celebrating the passage of time. I think, honestly, this is the the other side of this conversation. When we can, so many ways, celebrating the passage of time, recognizing the, the rituals in our lives can help ease some of this pressure we put on ourselves every day. So we're excited about that conversation. We are so excited to be joined by Sarah Sturley, who reached out to us after we had our conversation about sort of the passage of the everyday and the importance of seasonal living. And she is Sarah by the season at SarahbytheSeason.com. So she's a little bit of an expert on this. I don't know about that, but <laughs> <laughs> we were just having a conversation at the beginning of the show about the pressure we put on ourselves. Um, to be the perfect mom or to be the perfect wife or to be um, all these different roles that we play. And I was saying at the end of the segment that I think that the marking the passage of time and understanding sort of the seasons in our life, the seasons in the year is a really good way to ease the pressure we put on ourselves. So can you tell us about your seasonal journey and why you think this is so important and maybe how it, how it helps you with the the pressures of the modern woman? Yes, I think that's very well put. I think I got into the seasonal thing kind of backwards. I um, have just always been a tree hugger. And so <laughs> I kind of see the food we eat as kind of a um, really good on-ramp for people to care about the environment more because we do it three times a day minimum. So if they start thinking about what they're putting in their bodies and what the environmental impacts of that are, then it's just going to um, snowball into other aspects. But then we started living that way and gardening and eating according to the seasons. And there were all these other benefits, a lot of which I think have to do with just letting us off the hook in terms of, mm -hmm. um, you know, all these roles and 
the ways that we judge ourselves and things along those lines. So we really try to, you know, during certain, like coming out of the winter right now, we kind of pull back. We, you know, we don't socialize as much. Um, we read more books. We don't feel guilty that we're not doing stuff because January and February are for hunkering down and, you know, just kind of being more, I have two, we have two, um, kids. And so we can't, you know, we just kind of, kind of fall back into our little family group a little bit more than we usually do. And then now it's spring and rebirth. And so we're planting and planning for the season. Um, we start, you know, kind of going out from our house a little bit more as well, socializing more. We love to host people. We just kind of plan that to do that more in the spring, summer, and then I have a lot fall months than we like do I'm in the winter. And so right just now. kind of these seasons of what's to come in the that, season okay, ahead well, dreaming in the winter about it because I have this an energy reserve kind of thing that I've filled my bucket back up just like nature does. I mean, you're basically just replicating what nature does. And if we like all the, any of our religious traditions, they all fall back on these agrarian ideas because that's how they all came about. And so there's wisdom in that, that I think we've just completely divorced ourselves from. Um, so now we can't, you know, it's cold in the winter and we turn on the heat and we can just keep living. Like we can get bananas at any time of the year or, you know, whatever it might be. We just keep, we can, because we can, we just keep living like this. Like everything's always the same. And it's always this, um, just crazy hamster wheel of activity. But if we can try to, and it's really like a self-imposed thing because you, you have to decide to put these restrictions on yourself, whether it's with food or your habits or, um, any, any of your patterns or anything like that, because culture is not going, I mean, culture is going to keep going in this crazy pattern. So you have to just decide that you're going to put the brakes on and choose a different way. So tell us more about how you started down that path. I have a friend who is a beekeeper and I was having lunch with her one day. I think she's one of the most fascinating people I know. And she said to me, we were talking about how I plan to start a garden this year. And she said, growing your own food will change your life in ways that are unimaginable to you sitting here today. And I wonder if that rings true for you and if you could flesh that out for us a little bit more. Yes, I would definitely agree. I think that's really, I mean, so I, like I said, I started, I kind of just got into this because of the environmental aspects of it. We started a garden probably 15 years ago now, but, and I didn't grow up like that. Like we didn't have, I mean, I think my mom had like herb boxes and stuff, but it was kind of starting from scratch. And I just think that all, all of that started in the words of your friend, just a dramatic change in our lives. Because once, first of all, it's, it's like, it's not even the same when you grow your own food. I don't care if it's mental, you know, the placebo effect is real, but it's not even like the same salad that I go and pick out of my garden today that I would buy at the store. It's like, it's not even the same vegetable. So once you start experiencing that, and then I, we had a garden for probably, you know, six or seven years before we had kids. And I think just to be able to see it through their eyes and what they experience. And I mean, our kids eat much more variety of things than most of our friends, because when they're involved from the very beginning and growing it, they're interested in eating it. It's not like we have to twist their arms to eat it or anything like that. Um, so it's just, I, I would say it's this huge snowball of kind of really good consequences that come once you start getting your hands in the dirt, because that's really 
that's when you, that's when you start to make the connections that, Oh, you know, these seeds start out really tiny and then they get bigger and then you get to, they produce, you know, food for us to eat. And it tastes so much better than what you could buy elsewhere. Um, even the farmer's market. I mean, I think that's where the mental component is. I mean, we try to buy as locally as possible, but there's nothing like going and picking it and eating it right, you know, right before you eat dinner or whatever. And then I think too, just the, that whole cycle then, because then, you know, we, we kind of, that's where, you know, by about September here, I live in Indiana and work, work, you know, ready for a rest kind of thing. And so then that's when we turn down the garden, um, just the kind of abundance that, it, that a garden teaches you, I think, um, has been really powerful for me. And so, yeah, I just think, I think everyone should, even if you live in an apartment, it's really easy to have a, when we, um, lived in a condo, we started with like rubber made totes that we just made into garden boxes. I mean, we didn't even buy anything, you know, it was like super cheap. So I think even growing one or two things for yourselves can have a dramatic effect in terms of how it's just the lessons that it's teaching you. And you just want to keep getting bigger and bigger. We used to live um, in the suburbs and a couple years ago moved out to five acres and are kind of transforming the land we live on to be as much food producing as possible. And so watch out if you get into it because <laughs> <laughs> it has life changing consequences. I just think that so much of modern life, the narrative is the better, the more choices available to you, the easier your life will be. And I kind of think that might be a lie. It's definitely a lie for me. I get decision fatigue so easily and being our brains are just not meant to be overwhelmed with every choice imaginable at every single moment. And when you like, I think so much of choosing to live seasonally and choosing to limit yourself based on the time of day, based on the time of year, based on the week in the day, be it Sabbath or um, respecting something like that is about just limits because we, just like kids, we respond well to limits. We live well within limits where we're not having to take on the global choice available to us at every single minute. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm a seven on the Enneagram. So I don't really, I don't love limits. (laughs) This has been a big discipline for me to see um, the fruit that's come out of it by these kind of, you know, self-imposed limits that we put on ourselves. And I, I always like to use the strawberry as an example, because obviously now you can get strawberries all around the year. Um, but we have a strawberry, we actually, we have strawberries here at home now too, but we have a strawberry patch, you pick patch. That's just a few miles from our house. And we go there every year, several times. It's like some people go there for like a fun, you know, it's like a family activity. When we go, our kids are like down to business and we're like, you are getting as many strawberries as you can possibly get. Cause then we put up a whole bunch and stuff like that. But our kids don't eat strawberries during the year unless we have frozen them or like in jams that we've made and stuff like that. So they, you know, in June, when the strawberry season hits, they, we let them just gorge themselves, <laughs> strawberry, everything for like three weeks. And by the end of that three weeks, they're like, okay, I'm ready for something else. But then, you know, like right now, if they want, they know when we go to the store, they see strawberries and they're like, those are disgusting. Like that's not <laughs> the same thing that we eat in June. And we, you know, have talked to them about how far that stuff has traveled and that we just don't think that that's natural or right. 
that that just because it's available doesn't mean we eat it kind of thing. So I think that that's just been really powerful for our family to, to be able to talk about those, talk through those things. But then I would also just say, once you put in those limits and this is especially hard for me because I I don't really like the limits, but that there's so much fruit that comes out of it because it's just the better way. Like I'd much rather just eat strawberries, you know, for a few weeks out of the year and have them taste heavenly than be able to have the stuff, you know, that's at the grocery store right now. And that goes for many, you know, other things, not just food. So seeing that the fruits of actually living this way in many, many aspects of our lives, then kind of reinforces, okay, this is a good idea, you know, from the beginning, once you can kind of see the benefits. Okay. Real talk, Sarah, what do you actually eat in the winter? So we have a um, really cool local co-op here called Market Wagon. I actually think it's expanding throughout the Midwest, but they, they partner local farmers and kind of just make it really easy to connect with stuff. So we eat a lot of greens because of this market wagon where they have, there's a few farms, local farms that have greenhouses that can grow greens. We eat a lot of that. We eat a lot of soups. Mm-hmm. Uh, we buy, we stock up, like we buy our meat from a local farmer in bulk in the spring and the fall. So we have, we still have lots of that stuff. We put up a lot of tomatoes and, and we do cheat. Like we buy citrus. That's our, like we have this farm in Florida that we order oranges and grapefruit from, but we only do that during like January and February. That's kind of our fun cheat for January and February for fruit and stuff like that. And we're not, I mean, I try not to be too just, you know, OCD about it, I guess. Um, we do our best. So if there's things in there, you know, like my husband will cheat and buy bananas sometimes kind of thing, but (laughs) we do our best. (laughs) So tell us about a day beyond eating. How does darkness and light or other aspects of the season influence the way that you run your household? So I think just coming out of, um, like in j- just, you know, when the time changes, we have daylight savings time here and we, wait, I thought Indiana didn't have daylight savings. Well, time. we do now. It's very, I don't know. I, I've grown up. I've, um, mostly lived here my whole life and we used to not have it. And then like a couple years ago we went to it and I don't, oh, that's funny. So, um, but we, I mean, in the winter we go to bed like a solid hour, hour and a half earlier. And when you start reading about, um, I love Wendell Berry. So you start reading some of these more agrarian writers. It's like that their farmers are tired in the winter. Mm-hmm. Like they just, you kind of like have to, and I don't, I mean, scientifically, I don't know if that's actually accurate, but it doesn't, I mean, just you're, when the days are shorter, you are more tired. And so we sleep like probably an hour and a half or two hours longer in the winter than we do in the summer months. And we just kind of have that kind of, like I talked about that slower pace in the winter. Um, we're just at home more and not going out and doing as much. And then in the summer, we are outside a lot because there's a lot of work to do around here. Gardening is a lot of work. It's fun work, but it's still a lot of work. And so, you know, we're up later, the days are longer. You have more energy anyway, cause you're out there doing And I think one thing that has become really important to me as I've gotten older and 
just motherhood and is finding that time to be outside regardless of what the weather is like, because since we can be inside either like in the winter and there's heat here or in the summer, you can cool off and be outside in this artificial environment all the time. We really need, we've lost that connection with nature because we don't have to be out in it. And so for me, even in the winter, I just have to get outside once a day, even if it's just, you know, short 10 minute walk, just to kind of reconnect. And it's just been, it's a good kind of mindfulness practice for me, to be honest. But I would say we just kind of structure, you know, we're, we're resting more in the fall and winter when things kind of start, start to contract, the days are shorter. And then we're in more energetic and doing more in the spring and especially the spring, the spring, um, from a gardening and farming standpoint, you're just doing, it seems like you're just going all the time. I would also argue that the sleeping more in the winter and fall is an immune system response. I think that I notice my kids get sick when they're tired, period. Like that is the key. If they're tired, they're going to get sick. So have you noticed sort of health consequences with regards to the way you've changed the way you've been living seasonally? Yeah. So we, I'm really, I love like some of the more traditional ways of putting up food. So, um, lacto fermentation, which is before we had canning and electricity and all this, like a lot of, so sauerkrauts, if you think about that, but they ferment all sorts, every, um, culture has different fermentation traditions. Well, so what this basically does is it's kind of like the good bugs are, mm-hmm. you know, multiplying. And so, it, and just how, I mean, I'm sure you guys have read how much, how important gut health is and stuff like that. So we use a lot of those more traditional methods of putting up our food and our kids are crazy healthy for it. I would say we, that whenever we have well visits at the pediatrician, the nurse always jokes that our kids have like the thinnest files of anybody because <laughs> we've been going there since they were babies, but they just don't really knock on wood, get sick. And, um, I would say too, I don't know about you. I mean, I'm 37, so I've just noticed like, I, I can't like power through like I used mm-hmm. to be able to. And so it's, everything becomes more important, um, in terms of just wellness in general. And so like some of these things, which I think are, you know, that we've just completely lost by pasteurizing everything to death and worrying about cleanliness so much, it's actually, it helps us to, um, just incorporate, like live more in tune with what's going on in nature. So not being so, you know, like we, our kids are out in the dirt and there's, there's so much benefit from just engaging and grounding with the dirt in that way. Um, and then in terms of what we eat, not, I I do think that we just have to be, or I've noticed my husband and I just have to be a lot more careful and it's easier when, you know, you have whole real foods to kind of stay on track there from a health standpoint, if that makes sense. Do you think that the, the kinds of things that we're talking about are compatible with modern living generally or do you think that people really have to make a choice? Like if you can, if you are, I think about myself when I was a lawyer and I had to bill, you know, 
1850 every year, which felt impossible to me. It felt like, how am I even going to get my teeth brushed and do the level of work that I have to do every day, plus the commute, plus adding kids to that? Could I have dipped my toe into seasonal living, or is it something where you just have to make a choice between tuning in with nature and participating in kind of a modern, modern, crazy, hectic life? That's a good question. I mean, I would, I would hope that it's possible to dip your toe in. I think there's, I think really in a lot of environmental ways, there's, there are ways to just dip your toe in and that you see the good effects of it. And then you want some more. Um, I work, I work outside the house about 30 hours a week. So I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm not full time, but I do, you know, do all of this stuff. But I will say too, there's a lot of, you know, cooking and food prep and, um, you just, I think it is like a value shift and we have not, it, this has been kind of like, as I mentioned, like a 10 to 15 year journey for us of just, you know, taking off, biting off a little bit more each year, seeing what works and what doesn't. And, you know, then going forward. And there have been times where we bit off more than we could chew and we had to step back. Um, last year, we built a greenhouse and we loved having fresh greens all winter right in our backyard. But then we had a bad windstorm and it took the greenhouse out in last April. But then when we were kind of this fall trying to figure out what to do, my husband and I were like, you know, that it might be kind of nice not to have to deal with that all winter. So we had found, you know, we found this other farm that grows the stuff and sells it. We can buy from them. So I think some of those things where you just have to play around with what and starting small and just seeing what works. But I think that's true for a lot of just environmental stuff in general. You know, you maybe start off recycling and then maybe you start a compost bin and you realize, you know, how easy that is. And then using that to feed your garden. And a lot of these things just feed off of each other once you get started. But I also think that, you know, that your former career of billing that much and feeling like you had no margin for yourself is not sustainable either. I mean, I think it's just a broken model. Mm-hmm. I mean, I found that to be the case. Personally, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but we have so many broken models. I mean, I think about sending my children to school in the dark. Nothing about mm-hmm. that makes sense to me when we're putting our kids on the buses super early to get to school. And those things are going to take a long time to shift I think. Right. Yeah. I think, yeah, there's obviously some outside systems that we just have to work within, but I think there is some opportunity for kind of adventure and independence to break the mold a little bit. And that's one thing that we have found kind of addictive is, you know, we can break, we can get off this hamster wheel and not play by the rules that we've been sold kind of thing. And we'd really, you know, like to continue to do that and take that to new levels and bring other people alongside of us and doing that too. Cause I, I think we, you know, we think that, the, that there isn't another way when you're in the myth, you're in the thick of it. Um, but then when you either see some people or try some things and dip your toe in, then it can just, you know, you, you just see that, that it's not necessarily as black and white as you once thought. So as we begin the spring season, 
for most of us across the country. What would be a good way for someone to sort of dip their toe in? What would be an easy, and maybe it's not gardening, maybe there's another sort of spring tradition or seasonal practice that you would recommend? I mean, I think every, if you could just grow a few things and, or just one, um, and make it something that you eat. I joke, I started growing when we first started, I could be a professional radish grower. Cause like mm-hmm. I've never been able to screw up radishes and I've, I've not really met anybody that it seems like radishes. That's are- true. We had a garden that we like sort of neglected because what grew the radishes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but make it something that you eat. If you don't like radishes, don't grow radishes. But, um, so I would, I would definitely encourage that just for the kind that, you know, getting a, t- a taste of the gardening bug. I think it's really addictive. But then the other thing I would really encourage people to do is to find a CSA in their area. So that stands for community supported agriculture. And typically if you just like Google CSA and you know, your city there's so this has become such uh, a big and popular thing around the country that you should have many choices, but basically what you're doing is partnering with a farm up front at the beginning of the season, buying a share in their farm. And then they agree to give you food all season long and you can do different ones. Like the, some, some CSAs are just for the spring. Some go, you know, all the way through like October, depending on the growing season. And it's inexpensive for you. Cause you get kind of like a bulk discount by buying that way. And it's really nice for the farmer because they're guaranteed. It's not like going to the farmer's market and if it rains Mm -hmm. out, you know, they miss out on all that potential income that week. So they get guaranteed funds all up front. And I think it's really fun. It's a really good way to eat by the seasons because you don't typically, you don't get to pick what you get each week. Yeah. But when we first Which started, is, as with my decision fatigue, is so appealing. Right. Exactly. And it's so fun in the kitchen because you get to try new things and you're going to have, you know, fails and stuff like that, but that's part of the learning and part of the fun. So it's basically forced seasonal eating because whatever they're, the farmer's growing that week, you're getting, and you're going to have to figure out what to do with it kind of thing. You'll, it'll open your eyes to new stuff, um, new varieties. You know, I think one thing that people, I didn't understand when I first got into this is that, so I, you know, I was just kind of hung up on all this food being grown in like South America or California and being trucked all the way here or flown and the distance that that had traveled. And that just grossed me out to be honest. But once you start growing your own stuff there, you know, like these heirloom varieties that just, because none of that stuff that's grown in California or South America that's being transported here, they're not choosing varieties that taste, they're not choosing for taste. They're choosing for durability, transportability. They don't care about the nutrient content of the food. And so they, when you start growing your own, you have, it opens your world or buying from local farmers that are growing maybe more heirloom varieties to just, it's like a totally different, like I said at the beginning, it's like a totally different vegetable or fruit. And so fun to experiment with those different varieties and things like that. And that's where the kids get really excited. You know, like my daughter, she doesn't really like orange carrots. She's five and she's a little bit sassy, but (laughs) so she, you know, she's like, she only, her little plot, she only grew purple carrots last year. And carrots um, are delicious though. Yeah. They're way better. She is right. But, um, so that, that's just fun to kind of experiment and figure out new varieties of, you know, there's hundreds of varieties of tomatoes that most of us have never even heard of. So are there any skincare or other sort of personal care 
tasks that connect to seasonal living for you? I thought your foot bath tip was very good. I'm going to be trying that. Yeah, that is more like, uh, yeah, really good uh, de-stressing. And I have trouble sitting still for meditation. So that's my new meditation practice is the foot bath at the same time. I have, I, I actually just did my yoga teacher training last year. And so I'm, I have gotten super fascinated with Ayurveda, which is, you know, the 5,000 year old plus sister science of yoga just didn't really come to the West when yoga did. And it's, so seasonal in nature. So from a skincare, I haven't really experimented with it much until I just started digging into Ayurveda and they have different rituals for each season of the year, different things you focus on. I like that so much. Yeah. So depending on like right now we're getting into a kapha season, which means like you have to, you want to move more. It's kind of like a heavier, oilier season, um, is the beginning of spring. And so you do different you know, you do different stuff on your face. You, um, use different types of essential oils or herbs and eat a little bit differently kind of thing. So that's been, I, that's what I think is really fun about this too, is just like, it keeps it, you know, evolving into new things and getting deeper into new layers is what I've found. So that I think that's my new, new layers, the Ayurveda component here coming up. How do you spell that? A-Y-U-R-V-E-D-A. I know very little about Ayurveda, but one thing that I know about it that has always intrigued me is that there is a lot of practice around the menstrual cycle as well. Mm. And sort of living seasonally in your own body, I think, is a right. is an interesting concept that I'd love to learn more about. Yeah, I agree. Um, so each, every, every body has a different constitution. It's almost like personality types, but for not just your personality, but your physical body as well. And so like, you know, you, you to Sarah and Beth might have different things that you need to focus on each season than Sarah Sterling needs to, which I just think is genius, but you know, and this is like a 5,000 year old thing, of course. So it's yeah. not it's anything new under the sun. And they have all of this wisdom of centuries basically built up, uh, that we can draw from. So I think that's really neat. So where can people learn more about you, Sarah, and follow your work? Um, so I am at sarahbytheseason.com and Sarah by the season on Facebook and Instagram. And, um, I just look forward to, thank you so much for the opportunity to chat today. I obviously love this stuff and could talk about it for days. Um, and I would just love to engage with anybody else and talking further about it and kind of dipping their toes in the water and hearing how that goes. Well, thank you so much for being with us. We love talking about it too. And it's great to talk with someone who has waded more into the waters than we have. So we'll be following you closely and we'd love to have you back sometime. Okay. That'd be great. Thanks so much, ladies. Thank you. So at the end of every episode, we like to share something we've read that's inspiring to us. I wanted to share a quote from Hannah Coulter by Wendell Berry, a novel I just read um, based on the recommendation, as always, of Anne Bogle at Modern Mrs. Darcy. And this this character in this book is engaged to a man who sadly dies in World War II. And then she's looking back on her life after a long, happy marriage to another man. 
Sometimes, too, I could see that love is a great room with a lot of doors where we are invited to knock and come in. Though it contains all the world, the sun, moon, and stars, it is so small as to be also in our hearts. It is in the hearts of those who choose to come in. Some do not come in. Some may stay out forever. Some come in together and leave separately. Some come in and stay until they die and after. I was in it a long time with Nathan. I am still in it with him. And what about Virgil? Once we two went in and were together in that room. And now, in my tenderness of remembering it all again, I think I am still there with him too. I am there with all the others. Most of them gone, but some who are still here, who gave me love and called forth love from me. When I number them over, I am surprised how many there are. I think that is so beautiful and connects so nicely to the whole conversation that we had about pressure and about ritual. You know, welcoming people as they come and go from our lives, recognizing that they are not diminished by any constraints that we put around a particular relationship. I love it. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of The Nuanced Life. We'll be back with you here on Wednesday. Between now and then, you can hear us on Pantsuit Politics. Thank you for all your support. And until we talk with you again, keep it nuanced, y'all. Mm-hmm.